You're listening to the Sci-Fi Diner Podcast, serving the latest news in sci-fi multimedia. And now, your hosts, Scott, Miles, and Emma. Your table is ready. Live long and prosper. This is the captain. We have a little problem with our entry sequence, so we may experience some slight turbulence and then explode. I got a bad feeling about this. Walter, put the cow away, would you? What is this place? It's a freak show. Greetings, Sci-Fi Diner fans. Way back on episode 158 of the Sci-Fi Diner, Scott and Miles interviewed Nicholas F. Demiatis, who talked about his book, Edward of Planet Earth. As a result of hearing that interview, I downloaded and read Edward and found myself fascinated with Nick's work. Since then, I have also read his other works, Chinese Intelligence Operations and Understanding Americans, A Guide for Everyone Else. Not long ago, I had an opportunity to interview Nick myself. I thought it might be interesting to put an audio interview on my blog, Jim's Sci-Fi Blog. It worked out well, and so I thought it would also be nice to share it with you, the Sci-Fi Diner audience. So here it is, my interview with Nicholas Eftemiatis, author, teacher, and expert on future technology. On the line today, direct from London, I have Nicholas Eftemiatis, author of Edward of Planet Earth and other books. And uh, how are you doing today, Nick? I'm doing just great, Jim. It's uh, cold and wet here in London, as always. Wow. Well, it's always a pleasure to visit with you online, and it's kind of neat to visit with you here on the Google Hangout today. Um, So what I'd like to talk about a little bit today is your books and uh, a few other things. But first, I'd like you kind of to um, tell us a little about yourself, where you're from, uh, what you've done in the past, and what you're doing today. Well, uh, I'm originally from New York City. I spent the past 30 years of my life in uh, in the uh, federal government, actually, in the intelligence and uh, defense communities. I did um, uh, with the Defense Intelligence Agency primarily. Uh, I had a tour early on in my government career with the CIA for three and a half years. I did seven years with the National Security Space Office where we did future technologies, generation after next national security space systems. Uh, and I was Defense Intelligence Agency's, uh, they're leading their futures division and their space division as well. Uh, currently, I'm with Department of Defense. I have a diplomatic assignment and a representative to the UK Ministry of Defense here in London. Wow. And I also understand you teach at uh, King's College there in London. I do. I teach at King's College in the War Studies Department. I teach uh, actually uh, an academic block on China, and I also teach a full course in the evenings on uh, future technologies and the impact on global security. Ah. So speaking of, of uh, your relationship or your knowledge of China, you've published a book called Chinese Intelligence Operations, and I read that book a while back. And uh, the impression that I got were that the Chinese weren't uh, real uh, up on on their intelligence operations. And I believe you mentioned to me a while back that they have improved on that quite a bit. Uh, yeah, very much so. They uh, Remember, the book that I published was um, on my own, in fact, and in the 90s, mid-90s. And at that time, 
I, I was thinking about this recently, and I don't think that they had the benefits of the economic boom that they've had in the subsequent years. So their intelligence work was, um, although vast, uh, particularly in technology collection, it wasn't very sophisticated. And uh, so I'm actually looking at doing an update to that some almost 20 years later and, uh, and uh, covering the ground since that period of that book, in which they've gotten far more sophisticated in their operations. Ah, one thing that I've been kind of curious about, I've noticed in the news that we've seen some uh, intelligence problems where uh, hard drives and things have been confiscated. Um, I know that the Chinese have a sophisticated uh, space program. Um, just curious if you can if you can answer this, how much of what they are doing in space is a direct result of what they may have gathered in intelligence from us here in the United States? Uh, well, I, I, I actually can answer that, but I, let me stress, I, I, I can speak today as an author in that regard, not as a representative of the government. Okay. So sort of important to, I guess, to get that clear. Um, but in that regard, I actually published an article a while ago because I looked at very specific cases of China targeting the U.S. aerospace community. And, uh, you know, what I found in writing that article and researching it was that it is a, in Number one, uh, probably certainly within the top five target areas for uh, Chinese intelligence. So they're very aggressive in that area, very aggressive against the technology, not only against the United States, but globally. So they are making significant gains, very significant gains in their space program, space capabilities, you know, based on uh, based on foreign technology that they're able to either buy um, have foreign scientists come work and study and do research in China, which they pay for. Or lastly, uh, that which they're not able to obtain that way, they uh, certainly have an aggressive program of stealing technology. Interesting. Um, also, more recently, uh, I read a book that you wrote called Understanding Americans, uh, which I found quite amusing. Would you, would you like to discuss that book a little bit? Well, one of the... Um for your American audience, one of the, uh, the, the unusual benefits, I guess you'd say, to living overseas is uh, you really get approached with a lot of questions, a lot of questions about America. And it really dawned on me, uh, even though I have lived overseas before this, you know, the second or third year here, uh, just how much people misunderstood the United States and misunderstood sort of the basic political foundations and, and the basic uh, economic foundations and how that impacts our lives today. People were absolutely stunned that America was having a debate on, um, on health care, for example, or, so, or, or the issue of gun control or such. And, and they're huge debates even for us. But, but for the outsiders, they really have no perspective of understanding how Americans can even have these, uh, these discussions. The answer to them seems very straightforward. It's actually extraordinary. The, the concept of freedom in America is really unlike anywhere else. It really is. I mean, you, you do not have the same freedom anywhere in Europe, for example, that you do have in the United States. It's just uh, extraordinary, our, our level of freedom and how much we hold, uh, hold in that regard. Awesome. Um, so anyway, that was the incentive for the book. Okay. Now... One of the one of the impressions that I've gotten from folks from overseas that I've met, I had a good friend who was from Uganda, and he went to Texas, and of course his impression was everything in Texas was way bigger 
than anywhere else in the world. Do you find those kind of uh, stereotypical visions of the United States in, in other countries? Um, yeah, there definitely are stereotypical visions. Um, what uh, What's sort of common is that people go to a specific area in the United States, New York or the East coast or Florida, big vacation, uh, you know, resort or California. Um, I, I give a lot of people credit because they have the sophistication enough to know, wow, this is a big country. And they really notice the differences as they move to different areas throughout the country. So, you know, many people make, uh, foreigners make multiple trips to the United States to different areas just to sort of grasp the whole nation. Ah, well, let's talk about uh, what we're here to talk about, and that is Edward of Planet Earth, uh, your science fiction novel that I read about a year ago. Um, I really enjoyed it. And um, uh, maybe you could tell us a little bit about what the book is about. Well, the book is about, um, takes place 200 years from now. And it's about an individual, just sort of what we would describe as your average person. And he is caught up in a society and a time which is extraordinarily complex, which features AI, um, you know, sentient beings, if you will, uh, as uh, in automated intelligence, and which we track the technology through these developments, uh, rather the technological developments of the time. And each of these technological developments sort of challenges um, humanity in a sense, what we know as, as, as as our um, social and religious institutions, the, uh, the technology eventually, as it has been doing now over the past couple of centuries, challenging preconceived ideas of, um, of how we are as social beings and, and, our, uh, and our belief structure. So it's a story of this average person caught up, and he becomes caught up in a quest to understand God. And uh, that the technology of the day is, is, is actually capable of being able to do that. And perhaps even communicating with the Almighty. So, uh, so Edward gets caught up in this this concept by all these AIs, these various AIs who put together this plan, and he really just wants out. He is, as we call the uh, the hapless hero. He is the the person who just doesn't want to be there. Wants to find a nice girl. Wants to settle down. That that's those are really his ambitions in life. Very very simple, straightforward, kind of salt of the earth type person, which is exactly why he's selected by the computers for this, you know, for 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 this quest, this great quest. <laughs> so, um, what, and, and realize you, you work for the government, you've worked for the government all your life. What in the world made you decide to write a science fiction novel? Oh boy, that's not the, the first time that's been asked. Um, I, I, there were, were a couple of reasons I would think. Uh, first, I, I'm, I have been extraordinarily lucky that in assignments like the National Security Space Office, I, I, and I, and I'm a technologist in in, um, in the futures assignment, the futures work that I've done. I've had uh, insight into some tremendous technology for the future, things that are coming down the pike in decades to come. And I, I was struck by the question of of how each of these technologies is going to affect humanity. And it's, it's not something, you know, it's, it's the printing press all over again, except in multiple ways, uh, that we have these extraordinary technologies coming down the pike, decades away perhaps, some of them, but, uh, but each one of them is going to force a tremendous impact in the way our species exists. And, you know, I mean, you can see that in everything from cloning hearts, you know, if you can, or, or 
3D printing human organs, which gives life extension into the hundreds, to 3D printing, to nanotechnologies, which are already making extraordinary changes, you know, for our species. So I, I, I was challenged by this question of, of what, what does humanity look like in decades to come, as the uh, decades or hundreds of years to come as these technologies come down the pike. And, and I wondered, is this really something that changes a species or are we just the same people with super high tech toys and, 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 and that? So that was, I think, the challenging thought that made me look into this. And in fact, most of the reviews, actually all the reviews that, um, that looked at Edward, which include, I think you're aware, Bill Nye, the science guy, yes. um, astronaut Buzz Aldrin. Right. Bill Prady of the Big Bang Theory TV. Um, I was lucky. I spoke to all of them, actually, in the course of this writing. And, and we all discussed the social implications, the challenge to social institutions as we know it being brought about in, in future decades by technology. So this was a challenge that, that I thought of in writing the book. And this is sort of the core of the book itself. Ah, so um, in reading the book, it was it was really neat how the technology and the people were interacting and even even the uh artificial intelligence that you wrote about had feelings they had hang-ups they had uh, issues of their own would you like to talk a little bit about how you came about figuring out how to uh uh humanize your your technology Right. Uh, that's, uh, yeah, that's always a challenge, I can think, for a writer. Um, you know, I, every, I, I'm, I'm firmly of the belief that every character we write about, we conceive, is some amalgamation of, um, of people that are in the back of our mind, that people that we have seen uh, historically in our lives, people that we've come to know. Oh, it was interesting talking to Bill Prady in this regard of the Big Bang Theory TV show. And he described the characters, and they were all people in his childhood. They were all people that he knew in his childhood that, mm -hmm. um, that he pulled together in the construct of the show. And, and so some of those personalities were things that I had envisioned, but they were people that I had known over, over decades, people in the space business, people whose, uh, whose personalities sort of lended themselves to the job. You know, what would a computer behave like who could control weather, you know, globally, that type of thing? And, and you know, what might she be like? Would she be a she or a he? And, and you know, would she sort of think of herself in a, in, in a way that controls the entire earth? Would she think of herself as a goddess in some way? You know, that that's um, those were the types of uh, questions I asked myself with, you know, a fair amount of scotch, I think, went into this process as well. <laughs> um, but uh, those were the questions I asked myself when I, when I designed those characters, when I tried to bring them to life. Okay. Do you see maybe perhaps in the future, a lot of science fiction gets themed, it has the theme that robots and artificial intelligence will, uh, we, we train them to take care of us. And then they go beyond taking care of us to where they take away our freedoms in, in protecting us. You see that happening at all? Or, I mean, I know that's a fear of a lot of people as, as computers and our lives become more and more technologically involved. Um, do you see that happening? Uh, actually, I do. I, uh, um, I can see 
you know, and, and it's not taking away our freedoms. It's us giving away our freedoms. Ah. There, there is a trade that people make. There's a trade societies make in, in for security and being willing to give away their freedoms. This is a debate we have in the United States all the time. And different countries in Europe have, have come to different answers. So if we, um, if we add in the technology component, well, what do we have? Maybe we have a policeman that is in fact a robot. I mean, we're already working on mechanizing soldiers in, on, on the battlefield. You know, nations are working on that, drones and things. And can these things actually make the decisions on whether it's, you know, on whether to, to, um, to attack a target or not? Yeah, they actually could. Even at this point, they could. Um, now, militaries across the world will say, no, 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 that's never going to happen. But you know what? You, you have a scared soldier on one hand uh, you know, who's been in battle 24 hours and a robot on the other calculating information. Which, which one are you more comfortable with? I, I don't know. I don't, you know, if you go 100 years in the future, I don't know what the good answer is now. Maybe, maybe the robot is a better choice. Maybe the robot can see a gun in someone's hand and know, okay, that gun has not hit the floor. That's a bad thing. You know, that, that individual with a non-lethal technology is taken down. So hmm. I, I think we're going to give a lot of these decisions over decades. I think we'll give these decisions to AI. Wow. So, yeah, that's, that's a little scary, actually. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah. Well, People won't tell you that now. They'll say, no, 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 that'll never happen. But you know what? It, it, it won't be long before automated planes are landing, are, are doing cargo, because why would you pay pilots when you can do it just as well through automated planes and automated ships? And then after that, we'll start giving more and more decision-making authority as the AI gets more advanced and stuff, either to street corner traffic cops, you know, for, for, for doing AI, all the way up to then eventually security you know, situations where, where AI decides if you're carrying a gun, you're a threat. All right. Um, so uh, let's get back to Edward for a second. After I read through the book, and I'm not going to spoil it, but when I got to the end, it just stopped. Okay. And I like to say that it was uh, hilariously frustrating uh, at the very end. What... Uh, <laughs> I'm wondering, is there going to be a sequel to Edward? Are we going to actually find out if his inquiry is answered? Well, I, I, I am writing uh, a sequel to Edward. Uh, it was, it's funny you should mention that because someone who did a review of the book said when he got to, he read the last sentence, he yelled out, you son of a bitch, you know, and he <laughs> threw the book across the room. His wife poked his head around and said, what's wrong? And he's, I might've done the same. Sort of I might've done the same had I yeah, not been so. reading it on my Kindle. So, <laughs> okay, well, good. I'm looking, yes. I'm looking forward to that sequel. So, uh, as far as your inspiration, for writing, who are some of the authors that that you enjoy reading, and what what kind of books do you enjoy as far as science fiction is concerned? Um, I grew up, I think, like anyone on the classics. You know, H.G. Wells, and I mean Jules Verne. If you were, yeah, just I was just kind of poking some of those people back in my head on to who is Arthur C. Clarke, certainly. I mean, you know, Space Odyssey and such. Those were all the ones that I kind of grew up and read uh, in my life. Frank Herbert, uh, I, I don't 
but mostly uh, Ray Bradbury, of course, but mostly I think I uh, was influenced. And I think this shows by Doug Adams. Uh, and and I, I think if you like that type of humor that Doug Adams did in the Hitchhiker series, uh, as I think you'll know, that, that's sort of the same type of humor that's in my book as well. Uh, and it, it's a book that challenges, it's a humor that challenges our preconceived social institutions and challenges sort of their very foundation. So if you like that, um, that type of humor, I would say I was most heavily influenced by him. Okay, that that's one of the things that I really myself enjoyed about reading the book is the way you would turn the phrase um, a lot like Douglas Adams did. Um, that was one of the most fun parts about reading uh, The Hitchhiker's Guide. Uh, I'm curious, have you ever read the Dune books at all? Yes. Yeah, some time ago, obviously. Okay. But uh, yes. All right. And you, you might be aware that I am involved with a podcast where we're doing, uh, where we're reading the Dune books and talking about them and getting back to the technology thing again. It, this just flashed in my head. Uh, what you were talking about with the future of technology kind of puts me in mind of the Dune story where the technology took over so large that the people had to rebel in order to get control back. And then they made laws that uh, forbid anyone from um, making machines that uh, thought like people. So just, I, I just thought I'd throw that in. Yeah. Okay. Um, I, I'm well, one of the things that those actually, if I can just, I, Sorry, go ahead. Oh, no, I was going to comment do. on the Dune books for a moment. No, that, please um, do. <laughs> one of the challenges there, one of the challenges um, that I think that brings out is sort of a, for me anyway, I, I correlate that to current. And I look at now to our legal structure, which is our, our policy and legal structure is totally incapable at this point of keeping up with the technology. So we have things like 3D printers that you can print a gun and the, the, the government, you know, government's completely confused. How do we handle this when I can email you the plans for a gun or I can, I can literally print it out on your 3D printer, you know, in pick a place. It doesn't matter in country X, Y, Z. And that's just now first step. What about when I can print, when I can send the plans through and print a biological or rather, you know, any type of high order weapon that I can print through a 3D printer globally. How do you, how do you control that? How do you, if you can control it, how do you, how do you address it from a legal standpoint, particularly with multiple countries all over the world, each with their own legal structure and, and politically as a policy element, it's just, it is the proverbial train wreck coming to, to, you know, that, that is just now starting. I mean, just now. Over the next two or three decades, it'll be extraordinarily challenging. Uh, I mean, these are profound impacts. I mean, we could watch the collapse of the international system under its own weight and its inability to deal with these extraordinary things technology is bringing about. Well, do you think maybe perhaps it could also go the other way and say that, you know, since there will be the uh, ability to have anything you want, uh, simply by running it on a 3D printer or perhaps, as Michio Kaku said, in 100 years we'll have replicators. Maybe we, maybe it would do away with a lot of the criminal 
problems that we have? Absolutely. Absolutely. It is very, very possible it'll go that way, which is why this is such an extraordinary time for us. I mean, I'm sure in pockets of the world it will go that way. And in other places it won't. It'll just be almost chaos for, you know, maybe up and through the next century. But it, 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 there's a brilliant light at the end of this tunnel, I think, in, in the way humanity could move forward. Uh, As a science fiction writer, and I mean for anyone who's into science fiction, it, it's just an extraordinary time to, to, to think about the future. Well, it really is. We're witnesses, witnessing some very interesting things. I sure hope as a species we're intelligent enough to handle our intelligence. Um, yeah, that's so, question. <laughs> I'd like you to talk for a, a little bit about um, a nonprofit activity that you're involved in. I've been reading about online, the uh, Federation of Galaxy Explorers. Right. Um, Federation and Galaxy Explorers is a 501c3, a nonprofit that I created uh, 11 years or so ago. I got very tired of people saying that you couldn't get kids engaged and excited in space. Um, to me, that, that didn't make a lot of sense. So I started an organization, and the way to think about it is sort of like the Boy Scouts or the Girl Scouts. Uh, but instead of making birdhouses, kids make rockets and little engineering projects and, and observation projects of the stars. And so we have after-school programs, summer camps, and special events. Uh, that we run. I think it's around 10 states, I would, I would guess. Uh, we design the curriculum so that it can be taught by regular parents, you know, by, by with no special science skills. So, um, uh, so far it's done pretty well. We have, you know, on any given time, we have dozens, if not hundreds of volunteers, uh, you know, in and out coming into the organization. And uh, we've put probably 35,000 kids through our programs in one, you know, one program or another. Oh, wow. Uh, and it, it's easy to sign up, easy to find online. Okay. So uh, you know, it's one of the things we encourage to educate and um, inspire the next generation of space explorers. Okay, I will. I will make sure I drop a link in in the blog with that. Um, so, Nick, can you tell us about uh, where we can find uh, find you online, find your books online? Um, and and how we can go about uh, finding more finding out more about you if we're interested. Uh, well, I'm I'm probably unlike ninety five percent of the other people in my career in my uh, career field. I'm I'm pretty identifiable online. So uh, the last name is F Tomiatis, and I'm sure you'll 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 have that up somewhere in print. Yes. Uh, but uh, my books are available through Amazon for all major digital outlet dealers and some hard copy dealers as well. So, you know, type Edward of Planet Earth and you're going to find an outlet for it uh, easy enough. Smashwords, Sony, you know, um, uh, Amazon, etc. It's, it's pretty uh, Lulu, pretty handily available. So uh, I'm an easy guy to find, so to speak. I do run a blog. Uh, my latest article, which I hope you liked, was uh, I did an analysis of uh, Star Wars and the first episodes are, you know, episodes for the first episode in Star Wars and the intelligence applications. Uh, so the use of espionage and technical collection techniques and stuff as exemplified by both the Empire and the, uh, and the Rebel Alliance in Star Wars series. And that's going to be an ongoing series, I think. Oh, neat. I, I enjoyed that article and um, I didn't quite understand all, all of it because of the, uh, the terminology and things that you used, but it was, it was quite amusing 
uh, to take a movie and then analyze the intelligence aspects of it. I'm looking forward to future installments of that. So I think what we'll do is we'll... Yeah, it was a lot of fun, a different perspective. Ah, I think we'll wrap this up now. And uh, I want to thank you for for agreeing to come on. And um, I'll put this up on the blog. Uh, Thank you, Nicholas F. Demiatis, all the way from London, author of Edward of Planet Earth. Um, I hope you're having a great holiday. Uh, Thanks, Jim. Same to you. Uh, I appreciate your taking the time. I really appreciate you having me on your show. And thank you very much. Thank you so much for visiting the Sci-Fi Diner. We hope you enjoyed the food, the service, and the conversations. If you'd like to share your thoughts regarding what we've talked about, or tell us what you're watching or reading, flip open your communicators and contact us at 1-888-508-4343. Or click the SpeakPipe link at scifidinerpodcast.com. Or send an MP3 or typed email to scifidinerpodcast at gmail.com. You can also join the conversation on our Facebook fan page at facebook.com slash scifidiner. We'll share your thoughts on our listener feedback show. If you'd like to support the diner beyond the conversation, you can always throw some coins in the tip jar at scifidinerpodcast.com.